0: today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. Because for the longest time, we only had one JAK inhibitor, and now we have different JAK inhibitors. This raises the question about whether or not we need to sequence the JAK inhibitors, and why would you think about sequencing JAK inhibitors?
1: Today, Drs. Rachit Rampal and Geith abu joined the podcast to discuss sequencing of JAK inhibitors in myelofibrosis in this PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. All opinions expressed are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the views of this educational initiative's supporters.
2: Hello, I'm Dr. Gaitha Abu Zayna, a hematologist and oncologist from Weill Cornell Medical College, specializing in myeloproliferative neoplasms. With me here is Dr. Rajit Rampal from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We'd like to share with you our thoughts about sequencing of JAK inhibitors in myelofibrosis and the factors that can influence the sequencing. Now, the use of JAK inhibitors in the treatment of myelofibrosis has significantly transformed the management of this disease. Uh, While there is no specific sequencing guideline for JAK inhibitors in myelofibrosis, their use can be considered at different stages of the disease based on various factors. Uh, So with that, uh, I'd like to ask you, Rajit, an important question. Uh, In your practice, are you regularly sequencing JAK inhibitors? And what factors do you take into account when deciding on different lines of treatment?
0: So, I think that's a great question, and we're in a fortunate era where we can actually talk about this, right? Because for the longest time, we only had one JAK inhibitor, and now we have different JAK inhibitors. This raises the question about whether or not we need to sequence the JAK inhibitors, and why would you think about sequencing JAK inhibitors? I think there's a couple of different considerations, right? Certainly, we know from the NCCN guidelines, both ruxolitinib and fedradinib are approved in first line for patients with platelet counts of greater than 50,000, and pacritinib is approved for patients with a platelet count of less than 50,000. But in the second line, the NCCN is agnostic of what JAK inhibitors you can use. So in other words, uh, one can switch to any of the three approved JAK inhibitors uh, regardless of what one is used in the front line. So the question really becomes, I think, you know, why would you switch therapies, right? And I think a couple of things certainly come to mind, right? It could be that you're getting a suboptimal response, um, or you're incurring a toxicity, in which uh, which is either intolerable to the patient or to the uh, physician uh, in terms of what you're trying to achieve for the patient. So those would be some of the reasons I would think about switching therapy. Let's maybe give it a bit more granularity, right? In terms of uh, roxolitinib, we know that the expected response is dose-dependent, right? As you know, um, it really depends on what the platelet count is. And in patients who either have some degree of thermocytopenia to begin with or who incur it as you go along, you might end up limiting the dose you can use and by virtue of that, limiting the efficacy of of the dosing. And so that can be a reason to switch therapies. Um, And the other reasons that sometimes are important for switching therapies are uh, side effects. Certainly the side effects of the drugs uh, in terms of hematologic side effects are similar, right? in terms of there being anemia and thrombocytopenia uh, as predominant side effects, but the non hematologic side effects are obviously different, and we see more GI side effects, for example, with uh, fedratinib and, and pacritinib. Um, and so those may also be reasons to, to think about switching therapy.
2: Yeah, that's, that's great. So I think very important to kind of talk about first, you know, how do you uh,
0: use the JAK inhibitors in the
2: first line? You know, which patients require JAK inhibitor therapy, first of all? And how do you choose, before talking about sequencing, how do you choose between the first-line options that you've highlighted? And you would mentioned fedratinib, you would mentioned ruxolitinib, and, of course, pacritinib, uh, approved last year. So uh, tell us a little bit about kind of the first line. Um, you know, when would you choose one JAK inhibitor over the other? Uh, and then, you know, is ruxolitinib still the first line of choice? Um, and what are some exceptions to that?
0: It, it, that's it's a good question, right? And, and do we really have data to tell us uh, what Jack inhibitor to pick in the first line. I don't know that we do. Um, I think to some degree it depends on toxicity profile and, and the patient's comorbidities. Um, and then to some degree it it's going to depend on uh, maybe what the blood counts are. So for a, I think a good example is um, we've talked about the platelet count being a demarcation between when you could use picritinib or not, right? That's a relatively straightforward decision. What isn't so straightforward is the example of a patient with a platelet count between 50 and 100,000, right? Because per-label ruxolitinib would be dosed at 5 milligrams BID, but we know from an efficacy standpoint, that's really not a highly efficacious dose. You really have to get to 10 milligrams twice daily. So there's a couple of things one can think about, right? One could dose-escalate ruxolitinib, which has been shown in several studies to be safe, up to 10 milligrams twice daily. Or one could use fadratinib, in that case, at the full dose, uh, because it really, fadratinib dosing is fixed at 400 milligrams. Of course, one can attenuate the dose for toxicities or other reasons, but at least per the label, you could use the full dose. And I think that may be one example of where you might, you know, think about fadratinib uh, versus ruxolitinib. Beyond that, I think it's a, it's a difficult decision. Yeah, I think it is. I, and I think one of the difficult decisions I find in, in my
2: practice personally is, when you have patients who uh, present with myelofibrosis, that's predominantly, for instance, cytopenia is anemia, not just thrombocytopenia, but also anemia. And, you know, the data from the PERSIST-2 trial that compared pacritinib to best available therapy and the best available therapy arm had about 50, 45% uh, patients on uh, ruxolitinib. And so what do you think about kind of the PERSIST-2 trial and how that data can uh, maybe uh, influence the decision of uh, whether to start off with ruxolitinib first or pacritinib in patients who are kind of in that gray zone. Um, how do you think, you know, pacritinib fits kind of in the anemia algorithm, uh, especially with the new data, the retrospective data of the persist to trial showing anemia benefit uh, and additional uh, laboratory data presented at ASH by Stephen O. and, and his group about the ACVR inhibition. So I think that's kind of, I think, important to discuss um, because anemia is a frequent uh, complication problem in myelofibrosis. Uh, And on those lines, you know, what about emerging therapies? What about mamelotinib, which is currently in the FDA review process?
0: Yeah, important points. I I think you raise an important point in the sense that when we talk about, for example, patients with relative thrombocytopenia, platelets are 50 to 100,000, the patient who has a platelet count of 55,000 is not the same patient as the patient who has a platelet count of 90,000, even though we kind of bracket them the same way. And I think, you know, to your point, right, talking about this gray zone, right, particularly the patient who's got, uh, let's say, 55,000 platelets, are you really going to be able to dose-escalate roxalidinib if you start at 5-BID? I think probably our experience would say, not really. You're not likely to get um, it, to that level. Uh, granted, there may be some hypersplenism that you know it reduces and the platelets go up, but that might be a perfect situation where picritinib makes sense, right? Again, falling into this gray zone, as you put it. Um, so I think we have to think carefully about that. These are not hard and fast lines in terms of how we actually take care of patients. The anemia question's a really interesting one, right? Because this is where things have really changed with the uh, picritinib, but as you also pointed out with melmolotinib, uh, hopefully emerging soon. Um, uh, The data that you were alluding to, Stephen, those data that show that there is ACVR1 inhibition, and as we know, that seems to uh, regulate hepcidin and, we think, mitigate uh, anemia. Um, A proportion of patients, more than 30% of patients, were able to have a transfusion independence occur while they were treated with crittinib, and about 49% of patients or so had a 50% reduction uh, in their transfusion burden, which is also, I think, a clinically meaningful uh, endpoint that may be a key reason to think about switching coming back to the you know our overall topic here right so a patient for example who is on let's say ruxolitinib or, or even fedratinib, right and they're doing okay on their platelets but they had some degree of transfusion dependency to begin with and now it has worsened on ja- on and ruxolitinib or fedratinib, as expected it's a non-target effect given the transfusion independence data that we now have with pacritinib would it be a reasonable thing to then switch that patient to picritinib at the full dose, so hopefully getting you know all of the benefits of JAK inhibition, but at the same time incurring an anemia benefit? Yes, I mean, that's what the data so far is sort of alluding to. That's a very important point.
2: I think the idea that the dosing, you can, you can maximize the potential of JAK inhibition um, by using a drug that perhaps may have less of the side effect or toxicity that you've experienced with the first line option. When you switch to that second line, if you've mit- mitigated that uh, intolerance issue, and perhaps you can maximize the dose to get the, the best benefit of the JAK inhibitor. Have you, um, and you know, the data on this to my experience is primarily retrospective, but you know, what is your opinion or experience on uh, patients who have uh, acquired or developed thrombocytopenia or anemia on first-line therapy, whether it be ruxolitinib or um, or even pacritinib for that matter, if that was chosen as first-line, how do you when patients are switched to second-line therapy, do you see platelets, uh, for instance, uh, improve? Do you see that the thrombocytopenia actually re- recovers, or the anemia recovers when you switch over from one JAK inhibitor to the other, because perhaps the first one was the reason for the cytopenias and not the disease progression?
0: You're right, and I, I think that this is sometimes a difficult thing to figure out, right? Is it, is it the JAK inhibitor, or is it the disease? And I think, to some degree, timing tells us a bit about this, right? If this is occurring in the first three months, it's very reasonable to say this is due to the JAK inhibitor, and sometimes switching does make a difference, right? And we've just talked about Persist-2 in the data for pacritinib. Um, But I think maybe the more concerning thing is when this starts occurring six months or greater after starting therapy, because I think then you have to be concerned that this is actually disease evolution, and I think it's almost mandatory to check the bone marrow again at that point. Yeah,
2: definitely do a full evaluation for disease progression.
0: Uh, well, with that, I would like to thank you,
2: Rajit, for your insight. And uh, thank you all for uh, watching uh, our discussion on sequencing jack inhibitor therapy um, for treating patients with myelofibrosis, a very important topic. So thank you, Rajit.
1: And that's today's special spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PV Roundup Podcast. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa flash briefing medical news roundup and just ask what's my flash briefing. Thanks today to our guests, Drs. Paul and Abu Zena. Join me next time for another episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.